Purple Elephant shower thought of the day. You aren't paid according to how hard you work. You're paid according to how hard you are to replace. That's an especially uh, topical shower thought for today's interview. This is Purple Elephant Radio, where we hear about storytelling, originality, and creativity from the creators who are actually making something matter. I'm your host, Sean Green. So today, I am joined with a spectacular guest. Um, He describes himself as a husband, family man, motivated entrepreneur. Um, And he is the president of Utopia Entertainment. And we'll get into what that is, but for now, I'll just say it's event production and video production. Um, And I'm here with Joey Goon. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Sean. Appreciate it, man. It's great to be here. It's great to have you on. Um, I mean, this is so cool because I've done a little bit of kind of digging into what Utopia does. And I mean, it seems so, I don't even know what the right word, like genuine, heartfelt, like doing good for the world. Um, and so briefly, can you give kind of a, a description about Utopia Entertainment that goes beyond event production? Kind of what's the the mission? What's the the story behind it? And maybe talk about the origins of it coming together. For sure. Yeah, I, I appreciate the question. So um, Utopia Entertainment was a brainchild of my mom. She was a 20-year high school educator. And um, when, you know, raising three young kids, it's not that she didn't love education, but she took, she kind of took the idea of education and thought, how can I be a resource to more people in the community and fill a void where I feel that there was one that really needed to be filled? And for that, it was when she... Um, I guess going back to her decision to start Utopia was really, um, you know, she saw this time, effort, and energy that she was investing into teaching. And it's not that she wasn't extracting anything out of it, but she wanted something bigger in life for herself and for her family. And she also wanted the opportunity to have work-life balance, which uh, the up-and-coming generation won't even know what that is because now that we're all working from home, that's just a, that's just like a, that's going to become a tradition, right? It's just like work from home, right? But in any case, back then, Um, You know, she was working 80 hours a week, grading tests, grading papers, and she saw a need in the community. um, And that was her kind of where Utopia Entertainment spawned was having the ability to raise her kids from home and also grow a company simultaneously from the kitchen table. And those are the vivid memories that I have of childhood and watching Utopia scale. And really fast forward 20 years, mom's no longer with us, unfortunately. And that was really one of the reasons that I decided to jump in was there was this beautiful legacy that had been created by her and the community was really like the community wanted us and needed us and said, Hey, you know, we're so sorry for the loss of Jody. What's going to happen with the company. And so that was the time where um, I decided to, you know, to step up and take the reins, if you will. Um, And it's been a blessing. It's been a blessing feeling that sense of, you know, attachment, emotional attachment to my mom, although her earthly presence physically is no longer here, I still get that connection to, you know, to her um, every day, every day. And you say community, what was that community that was built up with uh, what your mom had built and kind of what you have continued? 
how would you describe that community? Amazing. <laughs> Just an amazing support system. When you do great work in the world, um, I, I vividly remember my mom always sang, singing a song to me when I was a kid. And, and her song was, it's time to wake up. It's time to wake up. It's time to wake up in the morning. And she would, you know, tickle my feet and say, okay, here's your alarm clock. It's time to get out of bed. And that's really been a metaphor for me to like reflect on my life and say, okay, cool. Everybody wakes up in the morning if you're blessed or fortunate enough to wake up, but what are you waking up for? And like, what is that larger purpose in your life? That why that inspires you to get your, can I cuss on this podcast? Yeah, of course you can. <laughs> to get your ass out of bed in the morning. And um, for me, it's really the community, knowing that we have an incredible support system of individuals and philanthropists that are, you know, all the way from California to Florida and everywhere in between of nonprofit agencies that are doing the work in the world that actually matters. And for us, it's really just being able to be a part of that bigger, like earthly purpose of how do we make the planet a better place to live for everybody? Yeah. Yeah. And I think you're almost like this, uh, I'm going to struggle with the words here, but like a generous middleman to kind of helping these nonprofits get their, their presence out there, um, through the events that you host and through kind of the, the videos that you produce. And so I love that. I love just that your your heart is in the right place with what you're doing. Um, but like I mentioned to you this before we started uh, recording that kind of my target audience for this podcast is young content creators, young creatives, artists. And I think one thing that kind of gets lost in translation is these people, they have these stories that they want to tell. They're, they're passionate about what they do. But then there's this kind of gap between what people are willing to pay for and kind of the passion projects. And it seems like what you're doing is balancing being able to sustain um, what you're doing with event production. And you're also doing good for the world. You're also telling stories that need to be told. So how do you kind of balance that um, aspect of earning money and kind of being generous with, with what you're doing? Hey guys, I've really fallen in love with the medium of podcasting. And I finally feel comfortable to where I want to ask for your support. So in the description and in all of the descriptions following this episode, I'm going to start putting a link for a spot for you to donate a small monthly amount of either a buck, five bucks, or ten bucks a month. Now, this money is going to help the podcast grow. It's going to show me that this is worth my time. And because this is for creators by a creator, I would hope that you can see that I'm doing this so I can sustain the act of creating. So if you really like this podcast, if you want to support the show, go down in the description, click the link to chip in a small amount to support the show. Thanks. I think it's, that's a really good question and a powerful question. And it's one that actually gives me chills because I've been invested and, and involved with Utopia for about a decade since my mom passed. And I wasn't always involved. I didn't know, it's not that I didn't have the entrepreneurial spirit. I was always doing something entrepreneurial by nature. Like I had a lawn business when I was younger. 
Um, I was a financial planner and I did wealth and wealth management and investing out of college, which is what I did for six years leading up to Utopia. And I left that career behind to do something that I felt I could more control my destiny. But when I first got involved in Utopia, shit, man, I remember I was still living in my dad's home. I was just a few years removed from college, just graduated five, you know, five years under my belt in the professional world. And Utopia was like the, the company that, um, it was cute, right? It was, it was like, it wasn't, it, it wasn't solid enough financially for both my dad and myself to engage full time. But I knew that exactly what you talked about, like if I found whatever that niche was, if I was able to, to represent that niche in a, in a way that was different from our, our competitors, that I could help take the company to new heights. And what I would say for people who, um, who are trying to figure out what that thing is right now in their life, and maybe they're juggling one or two or three different things is, first of all, Sean, I, you bring up a great point with generosity, but you can't be generous if you don't have capital. So like the first thing you have to do is figure out what that thing is and then go out and, 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 and I don't like the word better. I think that when you use the word better, you're competing against people when you should really be looking at complimentary, like how do you compete with people? Um, so, so try and don't do something better than other people do something different, do something unique. What is out there that is something that maybe at this point, it's not, it's not something that you even know if, whether or not people are going to pay for it. It's like, it's something that's so off the wall, unique and different that you just go out and you become an expert in that thing, because there's a difference in being passionate about something and being good at something. And I think the challenge in, 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 you know, the startup mindset is, Hey, I have this thing that I'm really passionate about. How do I monetize it? Where I think what we should look at, at perhaps just rephrasing that and thinking about it, maybe in a different way, which is first, you have to be really good at it. So you fall in love with it. As a result, you become passionate about it. And once you're the best at doing whatever this thing is that you do, and you have the passion, you're unstoppable. Yeah. So you kind of think that the, the passion, there may be kind of a smaller passion in the start of it, but the passion really grows from developing the skill. So it's not, and I, I like that you bring that up because I do think there's this um, myth about, you know, you have to be intensely passionate before you can even start, before you can even accept the identity. If I wasn't a obsessed with audio, with talking to people, uh, uh, being extroverted, because I don't think I am, then I wouldn't be able to start this podcast. But it's kind of the passion for interviewing people like you has grown from doing it and continuing to do it week after week. And so I, I love that message. I wanted to know, because you mentioned this a little bit, there was a turning point in Utopia where you were able to go full-time. And so I'm curious, what what was that that shift where... You were like, okay, now I can dive full into this. Did you come to this realization? Did you have this new client that changed your perception? Was there a, a, a point that you can kind of a date that you can point to and say, this was my turning point? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So Utopia largely was a um, an event entertainment company. So if you've ever been, Sean, if you've ever... Um, been to like a what we call a you know a Jewish coming of age is a bar or a bat mitzvah 
So Utopia's roots were um, like DJ entertainment, high energy interactive entertainment with, with DJs and MCs and motivational dancers. So think of So You Think You Could Dance, some of the best dancers in the world, and put them on a stage at your upcoming event. That was what Utopia was for its first 10 to 12 years. And then when I got involved, I started to think about, okay, what are other ancillary services that we could be providing to help supplement our clients' needs? And so I just went to our clients. And I think this is something that's really, really impactful that anyone can do is go to your clients and say, hey, tell me about a particular event that you've been to in the past that you really appreciated. Um, you know, what you enjoyed one particular aspect or you really appreciated a service that you saw that was being provided. Um, what is it about our partnership that is important to you? And what would make our partnership so valuable, so much so that it would alleviate all of your stress? Like, what are those services or what responsibilities do you need us to take on? What do you need to delegate on our team so that you don't have to worry? And asking those questions, what came to me was clients felt overburdened with the fact of having to juggle multiple vendors. They're like, oh my God, I've got to call the caterer. I've got to call the, um, you know, the person handling all of our decorations. I have to call my party planner. I have to call the videographer, the photographer, the photo booth company, the lighting company. Is there one agency that can handle all of that for me? And so we became that agency. We became the agency that stepped up and said, oh, that's fantastic. You want a photographer? No problem. We'll handle that for you. There's a fee for service, but we'll take care of it. So you don't have to communicate and juggle multiple partners and multiple vendors. All you have to do is send out the invitations, show up to your event, and we'll make sure everything is absolutely flawless from A to Z and everything in between. Mm -hmm. And um, I was just going to yeah, ask. Yeah, so for, that, that was the moment. Yeah, I was just going to ask for clarification. So in that kind of beginning stage of Utopia, did you have your own event space or was it you would kind of set everything up um, and kind of help out the the client? Because I, I know you do have kind of a space now. You have a studio. Um, so was that kind of a, a much more recent thing or was that always kind of a part of Utopia? Yeah, so um, we didn't have a... Um... We didn't have an event space, so we would always just take our services, and we've traveled all over the country producing events for, you know, uh, private affairs, um, you know, big galas, uh, summits, and large trade shows and conferences. But we we never had, you know, having an event space was never something that we offered as a service. We would just, you know, go to whatever event space that they had chosen, uh, which whatever fit the theme for their event. But now, sort of by this forced nature of uh, the pandemic, a lot of our clients found themselves struggling in 2020 saying uh, really largely our nonprofit clients that rely on um, generosity and fundraising and donations to make ends meet and to pay their people and to perpetuate their missions, um, to do, to, you know, to go out and serve their recipients and their events just came to a total halt. And so back in March of 2020, when the world shut down, um, we had a client come to us and her event was set to go um, full live on the, the Saturday after the world shut down. And so it was a Wednesday, her event was three days away. And she said, hey, how do we take this, you know, this in-person format um, and, and pivot it to something? We didn't even know what a virtual event was at the time. And so we... Um, our 
our event production team came together and met with our video production team, who thankfully has a 20-year background in uh, TV broadcasting and streaming. And those two teams kind of married. We um, worked day and night for about four days in a row. We asked our client to push her event out a week, and we produced one of the first virtual events in the country. Um, and this event generated $300,000 of generosity for this organization. And so we stumbled into it. We didn't even realize how big of a need it was going to be because we thought the pandemic was going to be a thing. And two weeks later, things were going to go back to normal. But that didn't happen. Um, so we found a larger office space and we've produced about 100 virtual events for nonprofits all over the country um, as a result of the pandemic where, you know, they still need that generosity to function. Yeah, that's incredible. That really is. And I love how it was almost by accident that you you stumbled upon this virtual event, not even knowing it would become the thing that everyone is pivoting to, that everyone needs to, to learn how to do quickly. Uh, but you did touch on teams, and I, I'm really glad you did. I knew we were going to talk about it because I just had a interview with Corey Rimmel, who I'm not sure if you know. I love Corey. Um, and we we talked about team building and I want to hear it from, from your perspective with Utopia. Can you talk about the evolution of your team at Utopia? Man, I remember. So you just asked me a, a minute ago about that, that like the paradigm shift of where I finally felt that Utopia could support me financially. I remember when I had a $150 camcorder from Best Buy that I was the videographer for Utopia. Had no idea what I was doing, but I would get on YouTube nights and weekends and learn how to do cinematography. Fast forward 10 years and we have a director of cinematography who is just un unbelievable. I mean, he's, you know, he's, for those of you who are out there that appreciate cinematography, he has a red, you know, multiple red 8K cameras and at the, you know, when he joined on, I was like, okay, a red, it's like a Nikon or a Sony, but don't ever say that to somebody who owns a red. <laughs> I don't know anyone who owns a red. That's absolutely insanity to me. Um, so the evolution of Utopia, our first hire was Roe, first full-time hire. And, um, and Roe had been with the company since 2002, since it really, since it first started. And he kind of went through the ranks. Originally he was a DJ. Um, he then got really excited about emceeing and leading large audiences, and now he's our director of production. So he oversees and manages um, operations for all of the 100 to 150 events that we produce on an annual basis. And what I would say about team is that the hardest thing to do as an entrepreneur is to let go. And... I think any great entrepreneur realizes that once you put the people in place where you know they're destined to be within your organization, and that doesn't mean that there can't be fluidity and that they move and evolve over time, but you have to have confidence enough in your team to let them fly and let them flourish. And just because they don't do things your way doesn't mean that they're not getting done the right way. And any organization is only as strong as the incredible team that's underneath them, supporting them. Yeah. And the other thing that I talked about with Corey is kind of, if you're assembling a team, it's first deciding kind of your strengths and your weaknesses and then finding 
team members that support you. So I wanted to ask you the same question. What would you consider to be your your strengths and weaknesses in regards to entrepreneurship? So I would say I am uh, I'm very strong at being a or what what excites me is being a visionary. I love what I say is, you know, with our team all the time, this, the thing that excites me the most is our evolutionary advantage. A lot of agencies talk about competitive advantage, which is how you do things better or different than other individuals. And we look at our evolutionary advantage, which is our ability to adapt and evolve the change over a long period of time. And we feel like that's kind of the new way that business is being done is looking at like, how do you continue to evolve? The pandemic happens. How do you make sure that you don't die with the pandemic, you know? And so the, the areas that I found that I'm very strong in are looking at like what is possible for our team and focusing on big picture initiatives. The things that I'm not as strong at would be um, granular task management and organization. <laughs> That's not my strong The nitty gritty. The nitty gritty and making it all happen and come together. It gives me a little bit of a headache, but I know that there are people out there who looking at the, the visionary component is overwhelming for them, but they're so incredibly organized that it makes me, that, that compliment between the two of us is just like, we're able to jive mm -hmm. in such a complimentary way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, well, I, I'm curious, where does kind of into that, that visionary perspective come from, do you think in you? Because I, and I kind of want to, uh, pivot to talking about your personal development journey and um, kind of the the self-development side of your your life, which I know it is a big part of your life because I know Zach was kind of introduced to self-development from you. I think that, that really originated from sitting on the family room floor in, uh, in my dad's living room and really visualizing what the future of utopia was going to entail. You know, when we were getting all this surveying our clients and garnering all this feedback, it was really like, okay, great. How do we make the most of all this feedback? And what are our clients really telling us that they need? And, you know, when I got, when I got involved in the company, it's not that the bar and bat mitzvahs and the private events weren't exciting, but I knew that I really wanted to be working with nonprofits, the agents of change, the people that are, you know, really influence, influencing the way that the world works um, and providing resources to those who may not be as, as fortunate. And, um, and so I, everybody, everyone that I went out, you know, I think one of the best pieces of advice that I got from personal development and one of my mentors shared with me at a very young um um, an early time in my career was go out and find a mentor that's doing what you want to do and ask that individual a ton of questions. And in return, you need to figure out a way to add value into that relationship. And so every mentor that I, or I'm sorry, every, every agency that I interviewed, a CEO or a founder of a production agency told me to stay far away from nonprofits because they don't have the money to pay production agencies like us. And I thought that was a really interesting perspective. And I said, well, no, there has to be a way for me to do the work that I want to do and work with the people that are important to me and figure out a win-win-win, a win for us, a win for them, and a win for the organization, for the overall organization and the well-being of the organization. And so we figured that out. And so I think for me, it's never taking no for an answer. And again, really looking at that evolutionary advantage is how can we adapt? How can we evolve? How can we do different? And how can we create 
you know, optimal partnerships with organizations that are win-win. We make money and they extract an incredible service mm-hmm. as a result. Yeah. And then the second part of that question is kind of your, your personal uh, development journey, your self-development journey. What, maybe like how far does that go back? Oh man. Um, my first, my first experience in personal development was a group called Epic Impact. And that was about 10 years ago. One of the first retreats that we did, they called these immersions, which were weekend long experiences. And you had no idea what you were getting into. And I was naive and I was lacking life experience. I was 22, fresh out of college. And they took us to the Red Rocks with a backpack, two protein bars and a gallon of water and a tent. And we did a meditation retreat in isolation for two nights. And um, that was absolutely crazy. And that really was the launching board that um, helped me, you know, just push my comfort zone and, and what I was familiar with, because I feel the more you can embrace uncertainty and discomfort, the more you stand to gain as an individual. Um, and after that, I, I was like, I just wanted more, 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 because if I can go to a meditation retreat and, and meditate in solidarity for 48 hours in the middle of the Red Rocks Desert Valley, Valley by myself, without technology, without anyone around me, I can pick up the phone on Monday and call a prospect and ask them for business. <laughs> you know, it's just like, it's, it's like that pales in comparison to what you just experienced. And so I became addicted. I guess good thing to be addicted to would be personal development. Um, everybody has their vice, but I became addicted to personal development as a result. And then the next introduction of personal development that I had was meeting Hal Elrod, who's the author of The Miracle Morning. And that is that that totally changed my life. And it was one of Hal's events in the Front Row Foundation, um, who's a recipient of Hal's, um, you know, kind of Hal's generosity. Um, that Zach and I, I took Zach to in Ohio, and that was his introduction to uh, personal development. Yeah, yeah, that's such a cool. I mean, that uh, event at the Red Rocks, the meditation. That sounds crazy to me (laughs) but i'm sure and i like i liked what you said about how kind of doing something absolutely wild made uh the the professional thing the picking up the phone on monday seem trivial Um, and i can kind of relate to that where i did stand-up comedy freshman year of college or two years ago and that was like I, I went on stage, I did five minutes and I don't remember any of it. I blacked out because it was so, so nerve wracking. And now it's like, oh, having a one-on-one conversation with someone, that's nothing. Talking, walking up to someone at a, a party and saying hello and asking what's their story, that's nothing. And it's like doing these big grand gestures makes the the little stepping stones seem insignificant. Even though, and that I feel like is the the point of personal development is do the hard stuff first face the biggest fears first and then everything else is a little bit easier so i i know that um with utopia entertainment you guys are doing a lot of content um and i really want to touch on this and kind of want to 
hear your wisdom for, for myself for what I'm doing because I'm really trying to step up the, the content with Purple Elephant. And so I kind of want to hear your content strategy, how you look at producing content, you know, in the sense of like, what are you producing? Is it all educational? Is it all inspirational? Um, and then also how often, you know, kind of getting into the, the nitty gritty a little bit, getting into the specifics. I know you're launching a Twitch and a YouTube channel. Is that correct? In the process. And yeah. candidly, we are just now really starting to explore um, a content strategy. We're actually, and and as you and I kind of communicated offline, we're in the we're in the search now for a marketing specialist, someone that could come into our team and help us, um, you know, create content both digitally, and um, you know, and and written. Um, and so we're we're <laughs> we don't necessarily have a marketing plan of how we're going to release content, but we do have an understanding of what our clients need to hear from us right now in in the way of like educational and informational, um, you know, topics for them to be thinking about. So with content, and my my brother and I had a really interesting conversation about content. Um, he's a, he's an artist out in Hollywood. And, you know, following his dream to produce music and write music. And, um, you know, he just started producing content not too long ago. And he's like, dude, you guys have to be doing this. You know, you've got to be on TikTok. You have to be on Snapchat, uh, you know, YouTube, Twitch. Uh, Instagram for us is not quite as relevant because most of our nonprofits live on Facebook and LinkedIn. But it's like figuring out where, where your audience is and then just being consistent like this. This is like the third podcast interview that I've ever done. And if you, you know, I mean, going back, I know I'm going to overanalyze the shit out of this and I'm going to, you know, continue to improve and grow. And, but like, it's all about being consistent. I know if I continue to do podcast interviews that I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll hone in on my craft and I'll be able to articulate what I'm trying to say better, even after the record button gets pressed. And I think that's it for content too, right? It's like, not everything that you put out there is going to be perfect. You're going to want to change it and you're, it's, it may sit on like, don't let it sit on your hard drive and collect dust. And I should probably take my own advice here because I'm a bit of a hypocrite because I have tons of videos and tons of different pieces of content that are just collecting dust on my hard drive. And it served, it doesn't serve the world by sitting there. So I think consistency is the most important piece when it comes to producing content. And on that same vein of kind of content and marketing strategies, when you're working with nonprofits and you're producing their events, I, I assume you're not, I mean, you're obviously not changing their story. They're coming with their own um, story and kind of their own marketing strategy. Or do you have some influence in the sense of like, you know, let's put a, let's make this into a TikTok for you and we'll give it out. We'll give it back to you. Um, and you can choose to post that or we can post it on our own stuff. Do you kind of take over the some of the marketing and social media development of nonprofits? Um, good question. Yeah, we don't take over the social media outreach for them, but we do like our cinema team will help them, um, you know, kind of brainstorm like, hey, what are the most important stories this year of impact that need to be told? And so we'll take those stories and we'll break it up in different pieces of content. And one of the most interesting ways we've done that is recently an organization was like, okay, cool. Like we have all these, these supporters. How can we get them to show up to our virtual event? You know, cause no one really, 
in the past, no one's been to a virtual event. We all are, are used to going to a hotel ballroom, paying a couple hundred dollars to go to a gala or a fundraising event and showing up, getting a nice meal, dancing, and then giving some money and going home. And so what we did is we went into, uh, this was a school we were working for specifically, and we went in um, to the school and we filmed what we called an invitation video, which was essentially all of the students of the family members who were going to show up to the event. And we had the, the little kids, the kindergarten through fifth graders, invite all the donors to the event. Because like, how cute is that, right? Like people's hearts are emotionally compelled by kids and puppies. And so I think just coming up with creative ways, instead of just sending out a, uh, a handwritten invitation to someone's mailbox, this was a different way, an alternative way that they could leverage social media to invite people to their event and utilize the kiddos to do so. So I think, does, does that answer the question? And just really thinking about um, how, to, how to market yourself differently in, um, you know, in a way that you've never done before. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. And I think, you know, the other part of it is there's so much content on social media now. And I think the other part of it is, I mean, obviously doing what you haven't done before, but doing what hasn't been done by anyone before. I mean, you already talked about how uh, you kind of have the evolutionary advantage. You're able to kind of be ahead of the curve, whether it's spontaneous and it happened by accident because you had to or realizing what needs to be done. Um, and I, I do want to stay on marketing and social media just for a little bit, because like I said, I, I feel like it's so relevant. One thing that I think I have gotten caught up on, and I, I don't think I'm alone in this for, especially for young people is because there's so much social media, it's, it's nearly impossible unless you want it to be a 60 hour job to post content on every single social media every single day. And I think it, it gets overwhelming. And I, I also don't think anyone can just be, just say, Oh, you just need Facebook. You just need Instagram. Cause it depends on the audience and it depends on, you know, the type of content you're producing. So I, I wonder though, do you have any kind of observing from what you've put on social media, different social media platforms? Are there, certain social medias that are designed for certain types of content? You know, I don't, I don't know that I necessarily have a, a perfect answer for that. I, I don't know that a perfect answer exists for, you know, like what is that ideal platform for the message that you're trying to get out there? I would just say that you, I think you almost have to do all of them and then funnel based on like what you said you know, funnel and pick your top two to three social media platforms and focus on those. The one that really interests me right now, and I have no idea if, you know, if, if it's going to be like a, a long-term thing, because to me, it almost seems like just podcasting via social media platform, but at Clubhouse, are you familiar with Clubhouse? Yeah, I've, um, I've listened to a couple of things just from my brief looking at it. It seems very, people bragging it seems like i've got the well it almost seems like the kind of youtube ads that you see promising how you can make a million dollars in 30 days and it seems like that on steroids with a lot of exceptions but in terms of the business it's all success strategies 
and I think some of that is good, but I also think it's like, just from my perspective, it seems a lot of, uh, not, not con artists. Cause I think that's a, a strong word, but just people trying to kind of brag about themselves and share what they know. And that's, that's my perspective kind of from the outside looking in and not knowing much, but like every profile I've seen is like, Oh, I work with Netflix. Oh, I work with, you know, these super talented, impressive people, but it just seems like this is their first opportunity to kind of brag, um, in a, in a way that other social medias haven't given them. Sure. Well, marketing is perception and perception is reality. So I think it's like, if you market yourself as like the expert or the guru in one particular area, it's almost like that's a, I don't know, that becomes perception. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't know much about it yet. I'm just now starting to get on there and dabble. And it's really because my mentor just had a, uh, a recent, um, uh, you know, like a, a recent, what I don't even know what, I guess, feed where he went live talking about a new show that he's working on. But, um, but yeah, that's the extent of my experience with, uh, with Clubhouse. But I, I would say, you know, back to your original question, it's really like any and all social media is not a bad thing. So it's, it's putting your message out there and then distilling it down based on where, what you feel is relevant to, you know, the certain audience, the target audience that you're going after. Like the professional audience lives on LinkedIn. I feel like more and more Facebook is kind of becoming the, it's phasing out. Instagram, you almost need a platform prior to engaging on Instagram because it's really hard to build an organic following unless you're bringing a following from somewhere else. YouTube's powerful, especially if you have complimentary written content, because, you know, you've got the video on YouTube and then you can have backlinks to your written blog content. And then if people are searching on, on Google, which is the mecca of all search engines, they could come across your written content or your digital content. Mm -hmm. So I think YouTube's super powerful. Um, yeah. No, that's that figuring out what the right yeah. one is for you. Yeah. It, it definitely depends on kind of who you are, what you're creating, what's your story, what's the point. Um, and, and so, but staying on marketing a little bit for going back to utopia, how do you sell yourself? I mean, at this point in the, the business's life, is it you're getting so many referrals that you don't even have to think about uh, cold calling, reaching out to people, or are you still getting, are you still having to reach out to, to bigger clients? Um, and how would you sell them? Sure. No, it's a good question. So um, again, something that we stumbled into when we, um, when we produced our first virtual event and, you know, we helped this organization generate the, um, the amount of money that they did from their fund from their online fundraising, we said, okay, like there are so many organizations in the country right now that are trying to figure out what, what are we going to do? And so we knew that we had a responsibility and an obligation to go out and educate all these nonprofits on, hey, 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 don't, don't like freak out. Now is a really cool opportunity for you to produce a virtual event and let us show you how to do it. And so we started to launch these, these webinars, these live streamed webinars, coaching and educating nonprofits on how to move their largest annual live fundraising event to a virtual or a hybrid event. And 
that's where a large amount of our business is coming from now is just getting this knowledge and these resources out there into the hands of people that need to hear it. And as a result, we end up picking up, you know, five to 10 new clients for every webinar that we produce. But ultimately, we're not doing it with, you know, we're not doing it with the, the, the dollar sign in mind. We're doing it because we feel a responsibility to educate people on like, hey, this is the new way of you know, producing fundraising events and, and we want to be the ones to educate you on how to do it. Yeah. And I, I like, I like hearing about educational content because the trend that I've noticed is, you know, whether it's YouTube or plenty of the other social medias, but YouTube, especially it's educational content is what I'm consuming. There just isn't, I mean, I think Netflix and, you know, those streaming services, yeah, I'll watch a a fictional show, but if I'm on YouTube, I'm looking up a tutorial of something, uh, a behind the scenes of something, figuring out how, figuring out the the educational side of a, a creative skill I want to learn, or just getting some wisdom from someone. But sticking with educational content, is that something that you've always, I mean, you said kind of you're moving more towards more content, but has educational and kind of teaching people how you're doing what you're doing always been a part of your your business or is this a very new thing with having to pivot to virtual and realizing hey people don't know how to do this yeah it was definitely a realization that we had about a year ago and um it, I, you know what um candidly i think it was something that we could have been doing much much sooner along in the process of like hey what does it take to put on a a great fundraiser or what does it take to put on a great bar bat mitzvah or a wedding or some type of celebration and like you said just doing a five minute or a two minute piece on youtube with you know written content to back it up man we could have been doing this over a decade ago and think about the following that we could have had but this was again something that we stumbled into call it you know like fortune or, or luck or hard work or whatever um we we stumbled into it and we're like we now feel a, a responsibility on the planet to put this educational content out there because if we're not, who is? Mm -hmm. And do you ever think about, and I think it's different because you are kind of a, a B2B type of company, but do you ever think about creating a form of court, like courses that could be sold to a, like a, an individual rather than kind of just educating a, a larger business? Because I, I do think events aren't really designed or like teaching about events aren't designed for individuals as much. But is that something you've ever considered as maybe another route for Utopia is designing courses for, you know, hosting events or whatever related to events it might be? Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's something that we're... Um we're talking about internally. It's kind of that, like, it's the time investment versus the trade-off, you know, figuring out what we can add, like, where do we truly feel we can add the most amount of value and then figuring out who that would serve and at what level we feel it would serve them. So maybe that's something we can talk about offline because it's definitely, it's, it's an idea that's been loosely thrown around and, but we're, we're really trying to figure out like, what is it? What is that nugget of wisdom that we currently own um, that could serve the planet in a larger capacity? Yeah. Yeah. And I think 
that's the thing about, you know, just ed- educational content is everyone can theoretically be an expert if they watch enough videos, but it's really whoever's doing the work is really going to have the most knowledge. Whoever has the experience rather than reading a hundred books um, is really going to have the wisdom. And that's why I like talking with someone like you, someone like Corey, because I don't have maybe a little bit of high school entrepreneurial spirit of mowing lawns, but I don't have that experience and I can read all the books, um, all the personal development books, all the, the business books that I want. But when it comes down to it, it's, did I do something risky? Did I, I learn something from my own failures rather than reading about someone else's? I'm curious, could you touch on kind of this this difference between reading something out of a book and learning from your own mistakes in regards to business or, or life or whatever it may be, but have there has there ever been a case where a book changed your perspective enormously? And then could you kind of counter that where a book could never compare to an experience that you learned through like literal experience? Or maybe we could talk about a favorite book and maybe some of the the lessons that you've implemented rather than just were inspired by. Sure. Well, I feel like applied knowledge and real world real world experience is 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 something that cannot be replaced. Um, you know, as a as a twenty five year old or a twenty two year old, I, I reflect on a younger version of myself. And um, the, one, the one thing that I can say was really exciting about you know, the younger version of, of me and all of us is that we have this childlike wonder and curiosity about the world, that everything has potential and everything is bright and beautiful. And, and I think that the older that we get, the more set we get in a routine. We pass the same gas stations every day, we go to the same places to eat, we talk to the same people, we have the same routines. And so I think as you grow older and more mature and you have more life experience, you constantly have to find a way to info sponge, which is what one of my mentors calls a fancy way of him saying that every single day he tries to learn something new about something that could be as simple as when I pass this you know, when I go to and from the office every day, I pass this building. I've always wondered what this business does. I'm just going to go in and shake hands with someone and ask them what they do for a living. And that is real world experience that you can't necessarily learn from a book. That's applied knowledge. That's, that's learning by doing. And what we call info sponging, which is what can you do every single day so that when you fall asleep at the end of the day, you're like, this is the one new thing that I learned today. And that's how we continue to expand the pie of our brains as, you know, thinkers and influencers and and visionaries. And then I think with books, the book that changed my life and had the most foundational impact on like where I am today and why I'm here is The Miracle Morning by Hal Elrod. And he says, how you start your morning is how you do everything. And so every single morning I wake up and I have my journal here and um, I write, I write out, um, you know, five things that I'm grateful for. I do verbal affirmations telling myself that I'm a rock star and uh, essentially, you know, 
I think it's so easy to talk, to talk negatively to yourself, especially when you get into a space of, um, you know, just, can I do this? And do, am I deserving? And so anyway, just having positive verbal affirmations really sets the tone for your unconscious mind in the morning when your unconscious mind is most vulnerable and open. And I do a meditation, I yoga, I do yoga. Um, I run quickly outside if weather's permitting. Otherwise, I go downstairs in my home gym and do 10 to 15 minutes of exercise in the morning. And that is how I start my morning every single day. And it's just put me in such a positive frame of mind where every interaction, I try and bring a little bit of light and love and joy, knowing that if I can influence or impact one person in a positive way, then I've done a service. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that that you look at it like that. And I've been recommended that book and I, I still have to to read it because it sounds absolutely influential um, and just for myself I, I have kind of developed my own morning routine from hearing thought leaders say do this do that do that and I've kind of scraped together my own kind of morning of just 10 minutes of meditation is really what I've gotten myself to do and writing a blog post in the morning and that's kind of my version of it's not about gratitude it's not about um, affirmations necessarily but it's about clearing up a thought that has been rolling around in my mind for days before and it's usually a thought that someone else can kind of reflect on and it's not necessarily I felt bad yesterday because I ate uh, a burger and fries it's more I've been thinking about you know, how do you market yourself in this light? How do you use this social media? And it's stuff that people can draw on, but it's also something that it kind of gets it out of my head. And it's also influential or not influential, but just kind of relevant. I think it's useful. And so I like that. I, I've liked the balance of writing a blog that people could take from. It's not just like brain dump and then meditating. And it's kind of that balance of the, the spiritual and then kind of the useful the the practical for someone else um dude i was just pulling out my journal too it's like this journal here has exactly that it exemplifies exactly what you just said it has all my best ideas and all my worst ideas and i feel like what what i call that is closing the loop so if you have a bunch of ideas on your head at the in your mind at the end of the day and you like one of those ideas, I'm sure if you have a thousand ideas, 999 of them may suck. I, I, mine, mine anyway. My, it's like, I have a thousand ideas in here and I know that most of them suck, but there's that one idea that's gonna be that aha moment for you. And when you're, when you're combining all these life experiences with your personal development books and your info sponging and you're learning and you're growing and you're evolving, and you look at that one idea in a different way one day, you just dissect that one thought that you decided to write down sometime three years ago when you're like flipping through your journal and you're like, holy shit, that's it. I, 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 I commend you for that because I think that the more you can get down on paper, the more you get it out of your unconscious mind and into your, your, you know, your conscious mind where you can really start to think about um, how can you take that one idea and add value to the world? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I did want to touch back on what you said about kind of info sponge, info sponging. I, I really like that. And it relates to a question I had written down before this. 
do people need to be generalists or specialists in regards to entrepreneurship, in regards to being a content creator, a creative, an artist? Because um, we've talked about how, you know, kind of finding your niche, what are you going to be the best at that complements other people, but it's still developing the skill? Or do you kind of need to let your sponge soak up everything, um, learning about uh, engineering one day and then uh, graphic design the next day and then chess the day after that. And it's everything and under the sun and learning as much as you can and being curious, but not necessarily trying to contain your curiosity. So specialist or generalist, what, how do you look at it for yourself? Sure. I think that as you're just getting started in your entrepreneurial journey, you've got to find a way to be a generalist because when you start a business, you have to be good at everything. You've got to be the accountant. You have to be the financial person. You've got to be the salesperson. You have to be the marketing person creating the content. So you really do want to look at, you know, where, where can I apply myself and how can I learn, learn, learn? And that's a great time to start, you know, getting on YouTube and figuring out, um, you know, if you want to do video production or you want to create films, go and, and, and start to study and understand and research how different filmmakers, whether they're independent or they're working for a larger label, how they operate, right? And, and then it's, you know, from there, it's buying your first camera and starting to understand Final Cut or Premiere Pro or iMovie or one of these editing platforms. And so it's applying yourself in so many different areas um, to really fit. And then by doing that, by doing that, Sean, and, and being a generalist, when you're first getting started in your entrepreneurial journey, you start to realize what you enjoy. You find your passion because you become good at a lot of different things. It doesn't mean that you become an expert at everything, but you become good enough at a multitude of different things. And then you can start to say, oh, wow, I really excel in sales. The next person that I need to look for when I become you know, successful enough to support this individual is a marketing person or an operations person or a, you know, or a whomever that person is, but you have to be a generalist when you're first starting out in your entrepreneurial journey and then fine tune what you want to do based on what you become passionate about. Yeah. Yeah. I really hope the people listening to this, the people watching this really take that to heart because I mean, that's something I I've never, I mean, I asked the question, I had it written down, but I didn't have it laid out an answer for myself. And I realized what, what I'm doing is being a generalist and I've slowly realized what I like better than not doing. And I think I'm glad you said this too about it's okay to be a generalist at first because I've always gotten the impression, I don't know if it's from my schooling or teachers, parents, but it's just specialize, specialize, specialize. And I think that advice is relevant for someone who wants to work a desk job or kind of be in an already established location or a business. And it's not really relevant for someone trying to do something new. And so I think it, it's especially relevant to entrepreneurs and uh, creatives and artists to be that, that generalist, you know, I, I love that. I love that you said that. And I, I do want to keep riffing for just one second, because I want to kind of translate this to the content creator who doesn't think they're an entrepreneur who doesn't want to start a business, but they want to do their art full time. And I want to hear your thoughts on this, but I think a, an artist should consider themselves 
a business, even if they don't plan on um, hiring more people, even if they want to do their art by themselves, I think it's relevant to generalize in, I'm going to learn just enough video production so I can uh, show my art in a unique way. I'm going to learn just enough uh, accounting so I can set up an LLC to sell my art online. I'm going to learn just enough of these business principles so I can maintain my art so I can sell it and kind of maintain my artistic passion for the rest of my life. How do you feel about kind of the the overlap between artist and entrepreneur and content creator? Just so I don't presume, can you can you give me a like a specific example mm-hmm. of what you what like what you mean by that question? Because I can go in I can go in so many different directions here. So I'm imagining someone who let's say they create pottery and they started an Etsy shop and they make these extraordinary pieces and, you know, they can sell them. People will buy them for a hundred bucks a pop. Um, and maybe they're trying to just to sustain that and not just sell a piece every month, but be able to sell enough, um, you know, every week. So that is their job. They can focus on pottery and, you know, there has to be that little bit of marketing, that little bit of business principle, a little bit of accounting and finance. So that's kind of what I mean of the, and I think of artists meaning like painter, collage artist, pottery person, uh, music, well, maybe not musician, but kind of the, the classical fine artist. So are you, so I guess this is the question about like, like what's the, what is the delicate balance between being a generalist and being specifically honed in on your craft? Yeah, and I also think the the question is kind of the overlap between artist defined as kind of that knowing a creative skill and entrepreneur. Sure. Um, You know, I, I would say that there's so much opportunity right now to involve people on like if you're if you're super excited about something go and find a a local networking group of individuals or other startup entrepreneurs or even start your own group of local artists like how could you perhaps leverage a network and a community of individuals who are as passionate about the same things that you are like how can you start like a local meetup group every Sunday you all meet up at a coffee shop for an hour or an hour and a half and you just jam. Maybe you find out like, maybe you find out one of the people that you're meeting with has a background as a CPA and they're like, wow, I really love the work you're putting out there. I'm going to donate five hours of my time every week to help you out with this. Or, you know, you find someone else has a camera and they're really passionate about photography and they can help you. So like, you don't necessarily have to bring somebody on full time to help you in that entrepreneurial role of, you know, helping you scale your business or create content or build out your Etsy store to, to, to grow and to thrive and to be successful, you know, go to colleges and figure out who's coming out as a communications or a stratcom major or someone who's in, um, you know, journalism or marketing and, and figure out, um, you know, hey, is there is there perhaps maybe an internship that I can offer to have somebody come in during the summer and help me hone in on my craft? So I think there's just so many different ways that you as an artist 
can be creative about um, whether it's leveraging an already existing network or creating a small network of your own to offer your complementary strengths to someone else. And as a result, you know, you're adding value to them and then they can in turn add value to you in some other way. Yeah, I, I love that that answer because I didn't lay out my question that clearly and I'm glad you were able to find something in there and really share something beneficial. But we are getting near the end of the the podcast. I want to wrap it up soon. But as we get to the end, I want to talk about the future. And I want to talk about trends a little bit. And because you're in the event space, I think you can touch on this the best. What are the trends that you see in uh, of events? Because I do think as the vaccine is rolling out, I mean, I've already seen some of the music festivals I've gone to in the past. They're they're getting back to it um, in obviously very modified ways. But what are the the major trends in the event space? Whether that's you know person like private ones like weddings to bigger ones like music festivals and galas. Yeah, great question. So I see um, private events like um, you know. Um, weddings and celebrations and bar and bar mitzvahs and birthday parties, I see a lot of those going back to a s- somewhat normal. Um, where I see the biggest opportunity for the industry to evolve is kind of the way that the industry has really needed to evolve and, and to be flipped on its head for about the last decade, and that is involving technology in a whole new way. So what we see as the future of over the next five to 10 years is this new hybrid model. And the hybrid model says, we're going to have an on-location event, but we're also going to, to offer the ability for you to tune in virtually or digitally. And that virtual experience, what we're going to see, and, and really, if you think about it, what that does is it provides access. It's just accessibility. So if you want to go to an event in the UK that's maybe the largest musical festival in the world, but you can't physically be there, you can buy a $100 ticket, put on virtual reality glasses, and you can still be a part of the event, albeit digitally. So I think this new hybrid model is really where the future of the event industry is headed. And also, Sean, think about this, man. This is something that my wife and I are talking about, like our generation, uh, the millennial generation, Gen X, Gen Y, Gen Z, we don't necessarily want to pay $150 and you know go to the Ritz-Carlton and have a black tie seated meal for this foundation or this charity. That doesn't mean that we're not passionate about the cause, but I'd much rather take my wife out and go to Clayton, find a cool hipster restaurant, you know, like a craft restaurant and take her out to a nice dinner. And, and so what hybrid, what that model allows nonprofits to do is to appeal to a younger generation that says, hey, we may not be able to stroke a $50,000 check right now, but in 10 years from now, maybe we could. And so it allows these nonprofit organizations to start reaching out to younger generations and saying, hey, for a smaller ticket fee, you could be a part of our event virtually. And by the way, as a token of our appreciation, here's a $25 Visa gift card or $100 Visa gift card. Tune in for an hour. Let us borrow an hour of your time. You come on you know, virtually within the screen, the live stream that we're putting out there. Um, and then afterwards, here's a gift card. Take your wife or your, your husband out for a nice night on the town. So you can tune in for 45 minutes to an hour and then go and do your thing and enjoy your weekend. So the high, is that answering the question? Yeah. I, I feel like I'm and going I, on a tangent here. I, I just wanted to uh, kind of ask a following question about that. 
I, I really like that you bring up the the hybrid model. And I wonder though, people watching online, I think depending on the event, there can be an obvious incentive. If it's a speaker someone wants to hear, the incentive is they want to hear the speaker. But I don't think, just for myself personally, I, I don't think the incentive is as easy, like isn't as obvious for uh, online events when it comes to something like, uh, like a music festival. Like I've been very like, I am not, even if it's 10 times cheaper, I'm not going to buy a uh, ticket to an online music festival because it's just not the same. I can blast music in my car and, you know, it's the best thing in the world, but it's, it's not going to compare to being there, you know, getting sunburnt and um, being tired and sleeping in a tent and kind of that rugged experience. But it's, that's where the memory is made, not from watching something on a screen. So do you think there has to be new incentives created? Or do you think just people who think like me are always going to just have to wait for the the real event and not go to the virtual event? No, man, I, I think I think that there are certain events where there's just something there's just something intangible that you just can't describe about being there in person and having that real raw experience, whether that's social engagement or like you said, the sunburn, feeling the feeling the base like pulse through your body. That's you can't duplicate that on a virtual platform. And so maybe in the future, maybe we're running events on Mars. Maybe we're running events on the moon. I have no idea. Maybe that would be like the next outlandish thing that would just take people to a new planet. No, you know, pun intended. Um, but I, I really do feel that there are certain events that the hybrid model works very, very well for. And there are certain events where you just can't replicate or duplicate the energy of being in person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you touched on that. And uh, another question about trends and this can be a, a little bit shorter of an answer because you know this isn't as much your space but do you notice any trends in the world of media and kind of the use of creative skills because i mean you already mentioned that you're looking for a, a content creator and that's a very very new position for you so do you notice any trends that may evolve even more than they already currently exist in terms of job opportunity for creatives. Sure. Yeah, I, I would say someone, I would say a, um, like a, a young, what, what, what do you, uh, th like, this is a position that, um, uh, okay, so just like a content creator. So think about, um, think about Gary V or uh, locally, Andy Frisella. These guys have uh, video crews that constantly follow them around. So you could literally make a documentary out of their life with just the amount of content that is, is you know, created on those SD cards from the video cameras that are following them around constantly. So I think that as digital becomes even more diverse, opportunities for individuals who are you know, specifically creating content, I think that that becomes something where... Um, not that there's not a lot of opportunity there now, but just a, a, a tremendous, a tremendous amount of opportunity within, um, 
you know, the next couple of years to, yeah. to be an individual who goes out and creates content. Could you touch on the, you mentioned the diversification of technology. What do you mean by that? I think just access like different social media platforms and the fact that, you know, you can connect with someone across the world right here on your, you know, on your iPhone, which is a literal, a click of a button. And so as um, social media becomes, which uh, we could go down a whole rabbit hole about how I, I hate social media and how it's uh, creating this environment where we feel insecure in everything that we have because we see what everybody else has on social media and it makes us feel inferior. But um, like it or love it, it's here. And so I think the more we see different apps like TikTok just popped up, right? Which is kind of like the new iteration of Vine and you've got Clubhouse and you have all, you know, Apple Podcasts is huge. And that's, that's relatively new. You know, that's really kind of kicked off within the last decade. And who knows what next, what it, what's like the next up and coming social media platform. So I just think that the more aware you can be and educate yourself on like, what is the next social media platform and how do you position yourself to be the type of person who can create content, whether it's audio content, whether it's written content, whether it's digital photo, video content, like th there's an entire industry that is waiting to be born. Yeah. And I think the good news is for as overwhelming as the amount of social media uh, platforms can be, it really will come to, with the exception of like something that I can't even imagine. It's always going to come down to photo, video, audio. And if you can learn those basic things, if you can learn how to start and stop a camera, edit basic footage, record yourself uh, <laughs> with a microphone and a pop filter you bought for $10, then you'll be fine. As long as you focus on your, your story, you'll always be able to kind of convert it to whatever platform is uh, the platform of the moment. Um, yeah. And so on that note, Joey, I want to ask the final question of the, the podcast that I've been asking the other guests for season three. What are you intensely curious about at this moment in your stage of life the meaning of life have you gotten have you explored that curiosity in any way um i think the more the more i venture down that trail of like exploring what the true meaning of life is the more i start to realize that the journey is the destination that there is no pinnacle aha moment like I listened to the speech recently of Jim Carrey saying that the, the moment he won an Oscar and an Emmy was the moment he felt the most depressed in his life because there was no next pinnacle of success for him. And I think that we place such a lure on like the mountaintop, like when I get there, I'll be happy. And the reality is, it's like, you're already there. You're already there. And the more we can be okay with who we are, and the more we can accept ourselves for what we've accomplished already in our lives without the need to constantly chase that next thing or that next victory, the more happy we are. And uh, myself included. Yeah. So the meaning of life is really just appreciating the journey. The journey is the destination. Yeah, I, I, I swear. I think Zach, my cousin, Zach Green, said almost that exact same answer of the journey is the destination. Um, so it just shows how much you've rubbed off on him. He's rubbed off on you. And on that note, Joey, um, we're going to wrap up this podcast. I'll be sure to link all the utopia entertainment, the website, the social media. Is there any stuff that maybe, you know, isn't relevant to utopia, but that you kind of want to shout out, give a voice to? 
as we're wrapping this up? Um, yeah, man, I would just say like how, how you do anything is how you do everything. And an average person can lead an extraordinary life. You just have to find what makes you different. I love that. All right, Joey, thank you so much. This has been Purple Elephant Radio. Don't forget to subscribe, and we'll see you next week.